Okay, so we established last week that Emuna, one thing we made very clear is that Emuna exists on two different realms. There's Emuna the mitzvah and there's Emuna the idea. They're, they're separate entities. But also, the Gemara says, and we saw the Rambanu says it, that Emuna is a very pervasive idea that covers every aspect of Torah. Indeed, if you want to know what the reasons for mitzvahs are, says the Ramban, the reason for every mitzvah is to achieve Emuna. So today, I want to understand specifically what Emuna means and maybe even dip our toe into the next subject, and that is how do mitzvahs bring us there? And how do we kind of kind of get our foot in the door and move up the ladders of Emuna? So I want to examine some sources that are very relevant and very telling and very surprising. And the first source is about Noah. We know, uh, the Midrash tells us, that Noah spent 120 years building and constructing the greatest flotation device of its time and maybe uh, ever since. Uh, a boat that was 600 feet long and 100 feet wide and 60 feet tall. And this boat also had compartments in which he stored all the animals. And of course, the boat is absolutely useless unless there happens to be a flood that's so complete that it floods the entire world and covers the mountaintops. So obviously, if Noah was so dedicated to God and to the cause, and he actually spent a huge chunk of his life to do that, no one would question uh, Noah's accolades in the realm of Amuna, clearly. Yet, we see that his Amuna is very much called into question. Verse tells us, Genesis 7, 7, And the last three words are critical, And Noah and his sons and his wife and the wives of his sons, they came with him into the Teva, into the ark. Why did they come into the ark? Because of the, of the water of the Mabel, of the flood. If you actually look at the beginning of chapter 7 in Genesis, it says that Hashem told Noah to go into the, into the ark. And when he actually goes in, the verse stresses, why did he go in? He went in because of the waters. But not because of Hashem told him. Because the waters, not because Hashem told him. So what does Rashi say? Even Noah had small emuna. He was a man of limited emuna. Ma'amin, he believed. Ve'ino ma'amin, and he does not believe. He believed, yeah, but he didn't really, really believe. Because he believed and he didn't believe. He didn't enter the ark. He only entered the ark until he was pushed in because of the water. Now, Rashi is problematic. How do we say that Noah believed, but he didn't believe? What do you mean? We see his actions testify very clearly, very loudly, that he did believe because he built the ark and he went into the ark. So why are we nitpicking Noah's and Muna credentials when, and saying he has only a little bit of a Muna when it seems to us that he had a lot of a Muna. The next source here is the Gemara in, in Brachos. And the Gemara says something very surprising. The Gemara says, surprising and counterintuitive. The Gemara says, Hamashmiya kolo bitfilaso, hareza mikatne amana. The same word that he uses by Noah and describes someone who's mashmiya kolo bitfilaso. Someone who makes his voice heard while praying. That's someone who has a little bit of a muna, not a lot of a muna. And this is surprising, because to us, prayer, of course, is an act of Amunah. You're talking to God. If you didn't believe that God existed, you wouldn't pray. Moreover, you would imagine someone who prays so loudly, you would assume that they're someone who certainly has faith. That They're praying loudly. It's amazing. They're, they're actually crying out to Hashem, and they're trying to rip into the, the Ginzei Meroimim. I would have assumed that. Rashi says, Why does someone who who's prays loudly, why does he have a little bit of Amunah, not a lot? 
Because when someone prays very loudly, it's they're intimating as if God does not hear when they pray quietly, and therefore he has to raise his voice. But still, specifically, someone who prays loudly, this is this is who we want to go after, so to speak. Like, this is the person of a person who prays loudly. I, I think it's still interesting to note. And the third Gemara in Sota is a very strange Gemara. Because the Gemara is describing the devolvement of the Jewish nation after the destruction of the Temple. And it says, a whole list of things, bad things happen. One of the things that it says is, Pastu Anche Amona, there's no longer men of faith. What does it mean to be a man of faith? This is referring to people that believe in God. Those people no longer exist after the Temple is destroyed. Well, what does that mean? What metric does it use to describe someone who believes in God? Ditanya, Rabbi Lezer Hagadol Omer. Rabbi Lezer Hagadol says, Kol me shiishlo paskasalo. Someone who has bread in his basket. Ve'omer, and he says, Ma ocholomachor, what will I eat tomorrow? Eino el mikat ne'amana. This is someone who has limited faith. Someone who has food today, doesn't have food tomorrow, they have very limited faith. So the Gemara gives us three people who have limited faith. One of these three people, Noah, he walked into the ark because of the water. Someone who prays loudly, and lastly, someone who has food today and wonders what he's going to eat tomorrow, that's someone of limited faith. This doesn't mean that they have no faith. It means they have a little bit of faith, but not enough faith. They're not a man of faith. They don't really believe in God. They believe and they don't believe, but they don't have full faith. So this is important to note here. We're trying to figure out what, well, at least, what do we know for sure? We know for sure is that there's various distinctions in faith. There's no faith at all, I would imagine. There's a little bit of faith. And there's a man of faith, complete faith. What does it mean for someone to be in between? They have a little bit of faith. Well, that's Noah. That's someone who prays loudly. And that's someone who has food today and says, what am I going to eat tomorrow? Someone of full faith would go into the ark because God told him. Someone of full faith would pray quietly. And lastly, someone of full faith, even if they have food today, they would not worry what they're going to eat tomorrow. I want to try to figure out if we can understand how this actually works and build a working formula of Amunah and then, once we understand precisely what a cogent definition of a moon is, we can move on to trying to see how every mitzvah brings us to that destination. Another Gemara here. Uh, this Gemara is famous Gemara in Shabbos. You know this Gemara because you know about Hillel, who tells the prospective convert uh, who wants to convert and stand on one leg, that the you hate, don't do to your friend, that's the same Gemara. The Gemara later on is deriving a passage in Isaiah, the passage says, Take six words in Isaiah, and it uses it in a variety of ways. For example, the Gemara uses it to say, after someone dies, they ask him six questions. Nasata nasata be'emuna, that's the first one. Kavata itim la Torah itecha. And Aranansi peace of Yeshua, Asatim Puravu, Papatama Chachma, etc. That's from this Pasuk. But the Gemara also uses it that these six words are representations of the six orders of Mishnah. We know that there's Zraim and Moed and Nashim and Zikin and Kachim and Taras. And it says this is. Emuna is Raim. Itecha is Moed. Chosen is Nashim. Yeshua, Yeshuos is Zikim, and etc. Chochmas Vadas is Kachim and Taras, respectively. 
But specifically, I want to look at the first one here. Emunas ze seder zroim. Emuna, what is emuna? Emuna is seder zroim. Why? So Tosfos invokes the Yerushalmi, very famous four-word Yerushalmi teaching, Shema'amin b'chei olamim v'zorea. Someone who plants, a farmer, believes in God and plants. And this is, I think, something which doesn't immediately make sense. But my question is, is it not possible for an atheist to be a farmer, to be an okay farmer? Just because, you know, like, if you were to say, like, which profession is most associated with the movie, you'd say maybe a soldier who's in a foxhole, or a rabbi, or a scholar, or someone who's involved in some perilous activity, they have to cleave to Amuna. The, the fact that the Talmud here is saying that someone who's a farmer, they're the epitome of faith, I think is very intriguing. It is not immediately clear what that even means. What does this mean that someone who's a farmer, and the way they specifically planting, someone who plants, that's an act of faith. And I think that, well, I think generally, whenever you see something like this in the Talmud that doesn't seem right, like there seems to be something wrong, like what, Emuna Zuzrayim, someone who believes in God, and that's why they plant, it seems surprising, I think certainly, and it could be a good place to kind of build a model that will help us understand what Emuna is more broadly. So I want to suggest like this. We know man is comprised of body and soul. It's a fusion of body and soul. Our body, we are intimately aware of. We know what it needs. We get signals when it's, those needs arise. Like when you're hungry, for example, your body needs food, it needs calories, it needs sustenance, it needs nourishment. And you feel something in your stomach. When you're thirsty, the same thing. When you're tired, the same thing. Your body has a whole list of needs. And you get signals when those needs arise. And we know we could see our body, we could touch our body, our body, we connect to the world via our body. The sources make it clear that just like our body has a whole list of needs and a whole agenda, our soul is exactly the same the same way. Our soul also needs the equivalent of bread, of water, of sleep, of uh, of oxygen. It needs all those things as well. But we are disassociated from our soul. We don't know of its existence in a tangible way. It's invisible to us. We don't feel what it feels. For example, you go 20 hours without eating, you feel hungry. You go 20 hours without the equivalent of eating, without Torah study, you feel fine. The Gemara tells us, Ein lechem ela Torah. Torah is compared to bread. In fact, the verse tells us, The verse tells us in, the book of Numbers, that bread is uh, is not only physical bread man needs, man needs spiritual bread, which is the w- word of God. But we could go a whole lifetime. Humans could go a, li- a whole lifetime without studying Torah, and they're f- totally fine. If you walk in here in Yom Kippur, everyone's like has a look, a sullen look of famishness, fam- you know, famishness on their face. You don't see that when you go on vacation and people don't learn for a month. It's not as real. It's not as palpable. And Moreover, I think there's some interesting things here we need to, we need to learn about. We know the Gemara tells us that there's 613 parts of our body, 248 limbs and 365 sinews. We're told in the sources as well that the neshama also has 613 parts and this 248 spiritual limbs 
and 365 spiritual sinews. And says Rupayim Vital, he gives a great marshal to explain this. He says, the body is akin to a garment of the soul. When you go to a tailor to have him tailor your, your clothing for you, they first measure what the body, what your body is, and then they tailor the garment to fit perfectly around your body. Says Rab Chaim Vital, he quotes the Zohar, that the neshama, well, that's who you really are. The body is nothing more than a garment to your neshama. And therefore, the fact the body has 613 parts, that's because it's, it's clothing your neshama that has 613 parts. So they're exactly mirroring each other. You have the body 613 parts with its needs. You have the soul with its 613 parts and its needs. And by the way, what, how do we know what's a shorthand for the needs of the neshama? The answer is the 613 mitzvos. Each mitzvah corresponds to a part of your soul. You fulfill the mitzvah and then you earn, so to speak, nourishment for that part of your soul. You do all the mitzvos and then your soul can live forever. You get to Olam Abba, what happens? They take your garment, they tur- take, they pull off your garment. Well, let's see what part of your real self, your soul, is intact. Because at Olam Abba, they take off the garment. Your body is not a player. It's just your soul. But if you didn't feed your soul, it will wilt, it will decay, it will decompose. It will, it will be undernourished. If it's undernourished, you get to Olam Abba, and you'll have Parts of your soul, like akin to organs of your soul, parts of your soul that aren't full, that either are malnourished, are ill, are weak, or non-existent at all if you ignore a mitzvah. Moreover, if someone does a mitzvah that has kares, which means death, what that means is, is that that mitzvah corresponds to a part of your soul that is vital for life. For example, we have ten fingers. If someone chops off your finger, I'm not suggesting to do that, but if someone to do that, they could still survive. But if you don't have a kidneys, you don't have a lungs, you don't have a heart, a brain, you can't live. Similarly, in the ruchnius, in the spiritual half, there's parts of your neshama that are more critical to life. If you don't have them, then you're dead. And those mitzvahs were told in the Torah, they're, 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 they're mitzvahs that have with it karis. If you, don't, if you don't have this mitzvah, then your soul cannot live at all. But even if you do have spiritual life, all the mitzvahs are necessary. Hence, we have to do even the most minor mitzvahs. You know, everyone has ten toes over here, but the fact that the toe is not so necessary to live, to live doesn't mean that you're willing to forfeit it. You don't say, ah, I don't need the, the, the pinky toe on my left foot. Who really needs that? No, it's part of you. Every mitzvah, even the ones that are not so, so important, because they're feeding and they're giving life and vitality to parts of your soul, the 613 parts of your soul, and you don't want that to be chopped off of you. You don't want to forfeit that like you wouldn't want to forfeit your, your pinky on your body. Certainly you don't want to forfeit the pinky on your actual self. That's not just the garment that's going to be here for a few years and be cast away. And you want to do every mitzvah as a result. So we have these two competing existences. We have our body and its needs are real to us. We know if you have, don't have food, you're hungry and you're irritable. But you're neshama whose food is so much more important for you to have, because if you don't have it, the implications are eternal. But that, we're designed to not feel. That's not real. That's much more abstract. That's an idea. Oh, yeah, we need Torah, of course. If we don't have Torah, we don't have meaning in our life. Yeah, of course, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea. It's not a practical, real need. And in fact, Chazal tell us very clearly, 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Ro'ev Eino Nira. The Neshama is Ro'ev Eino Nira. The soul and God share characteristics of the Gemara in Brachos, Dafyod. Both of them see but are unseen. There's no way for us to see God, and there's no way for us to see our soul. We cannot connect it on a sensory level. Its connection to us is only via our intellect. We can understand it, but it's never as real, or at least not initially as real, as what we can see. And herein lies the challenge. Even if we have a Muna, we believe in God. But is it real or is it abstract? Is it, yeah, we know we have a soul. No, I'm not questioning I have a soul. But is the soul and its needs and its identity, if my identity as a, a human, is that as a soul garmented, covered by a body? Or my body, and I, I happen to have a soul somewhere in the abstract realm of the esoteric notions pie in the sky. That's the critical difference. When we say that emuna, what that actually means on the highest level is to take the perspective of our soul, the agenda, the identity of our soul, and make it the governing identity and governing reality of our lives. Even if someone believes in God, they believe in God. Do they believe in God? But it's it's invisible to them. It's not as real. It's not here in present and now, right? It's an idea. It's an idea that they cannot identify on a sensory level. It's all invisible to them. What it means in Imuna is to take that and make it real and make it what governs our action decisions. I want to look at farming for a second. What happens? You take a, you take a, a, a seed, you throw it to the ground, you cover it over. The seed is now invisible. Correct? If you took an alien and dropped him onto planet Earth, who's not, doesn't know anything, and you say, okay, what's happening here? We have a seed, the seed's inedible. You put it in the soil, the soil's inedible. You add some water, and you wait. If you were to actually dig it up a little early, you'll find that the seed decays and decomposes and starts to rot. An untrained observer who doesn't know any better, they would immediately decide that there's no way this will ever result in a tree laden with edible fruit. There's no way that that would happen. And you know what? How could you say otherwise? And in fact, even science today has no idea how that even works. We don't know how that even works. It's all a miracle, i.e., It's invisible. But let me ask you a question. Whose life relies on this miracle of planting? Everyone's. Every single person's life relies on that. Because if we don't have that, we're all very quickly, we're going to die. Yet, the farmer plants it and lives life in a way that a theoretical idea that you cannot possibly explain, you have no idea how it works, but that's actually what's governing his life. And we see a, a, a disparity, what you can explain and understand and connect to on a, on, a, on, a, on a sensory palpable level and how you behave are the same. When we're told that the farmer has a muna, what it means is, of course it's not necessarily that every farmer has a muna, it means what he's demonstrating what he plans is that he is willing to risk his life on a process, on an entity that he can never fully understand how it even works. Moreover, the life of all of us, all of humanity, relies on this invisible reality. And we live in it and we never question it. We consider it as real. There's never been a conference what to do with humanity if the miracle of agriculture stops working. It's never happened. We all assume we just accept it as reality. But you can't explain it. It's reality, it doesn't matter. It's what governs our world. We all, we all rely on that. 
That's what faith is. When a moon or the way it's described in Jewish sources is when someone lives their life with total reliance on an entity in existence that they cannot connect to on a sensory level. It's, it's, it's invisible. It's their soul. It's God. It's not, but, but they live with that. That's what governs their reality. Let's look at Noah. Noah, of course, had Muna. But the Torah is pointing out that there was something lacking with his Muna. Whatever it is, and I'm trying to figure out what more precisely it was. There was some element of his entrance to the ark that was a mipnei mehamabur, that was resultant from the waters. Yes, probably it was primarily governed by God. But still, that maybe, maybe some of the Bali Muslims say, Noah was impressed with the water. Uh, others say that no, Noah was pushed in, act literally, the way Rashi explains it. But either way, in Noah's world, the fact that God said it is not more than all other reality. It's the fact that there is rain, that also matters to him. Well, if God was the only governing reality, that's much more real than the fact that it's raining in the kind of visible reality, and therefore there's something lacking in his faith. Someone who prays loudly, like Rashi says, they're ritualizing prayer. They're not talking to God, who can hear them, of course, even if they're quieter. Someone who prays loudly and, and as if to show that you need to talk loudly to, 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 to God does, is not actually demonstrating that he's engaging with an infinite entity that's the creator of all, of all heaven and earth and, and everything. And lastly, when it says, when it says that someone who has real faith and has food today and doesn't have food for tomorrow, what that means is, is that they rely on God. And not only that, they don't even say, what will I eat tomorrow? Oh, God will feed me. It never occurs to them to consider the possibility that we we'll have food for tomorrow. If, for, I gave this example. Suppose someone is the child of a billionaire. And one night they happen to look through the cupboard and find no food for tomorrow's breakfast. Are they going to have a hard time sleeping that night? Certainly not. How could they possibly have a hard time? They, they won't even consider the fact to even worry about it. What am I going to eat tomorrow? You, of course, you'll have food taken care of for you tomorrow. Someone who really believes in God, really, and it's, it's their reality, their reality is that they're overseen by the billionaire dad, which is God, and therefore they won't even say, what will I eat tomorrow? Someone who says, we, we think of betachon as, as reliance on God, as being, I'm in such trouble, what do I do? Oh, God will help me. No, it, it's a step earlier. I'm so confident that God will help me, it's fact. It's like running water. It's not like, oh, what will happen if I lift the lever? Will water come out? Oh, water will come out. It's, it's like, no, you accept it as fact and as a given. It's real and it's more real than everything else. Therefore, if that was, if that was really a reality, you would go to sleep no problem and know that God will feed you. I want to show how this is manifested and next week we'll talk about how do you, how do you actually get a via mitzvot. The Gemara says, famous Gemara, Ein Adam over Avera, a person does not sin unless they go temporarily insane. That's the Gemara in, in, in Sota. And of course, we have to understand this Gemara. What this means is that Chazal are speaking from their perspective. Chazal, was, the Talmud was authored by people who had real amuna, And therefore, to them, for someone to sin, it means to literally take poison and consume it. Because God said not to do it, and you're doing it. You're obviously you're insane. Because in their mind, if God's not to do it, it's poison. And therefore, someone who willingly consumes poison is only insane. I'll give you another marshal. Suppose you're by a red light, and you see behind you there's a cop. Is anyone 
who's oh, not insane, going to go through? Of course not. Why? Because the consequences and the judgment for the, that behavior is so real and present and tangible. It's your reality is that it's insane to do that. If someone does that, obviously they're insane. Chazal, they live with real amuna. The fact that God existed is not some sort of idea, theoretical, abstract notion that they have in their head. It's actually how they live their lives. It's This was real to them. This was their governing reality. And therefore, for them to sin, how it's, if anyone sins, obviously they went insane because there's no reason why someone else would do that. That level of amuna that is described in the sources as the goal of all mitzvahs. It's not a mitzvah to believe in God. It's a mitzvah to that, that belief in God be transformed from an act, abstract notion into the actual reality and the way in which you interface with the world. How do you do that? Via observance of mitzvahs. Next week, we're going to dig deep into how this actually works, how we can convert ourselves from identifying entirely as a body with a soul and its connection to God being some idea in the stratosphere and actually transform into an entirely different reality, one that is soul-centric, has a soul identity, and the idea of God actually becomes a reality.